Each generation, through its trials and its triumphs, valleys and plateaus, provides a trove of lessons for the generations that follow them. The fight for equity is endless, always requiring us to innovate and preserve simultaneously. We advance by building on the work of those who've gone before us, and many of them are still among us to put us on game. Gen Activist is an intergenerational podcast presented by Rosa Rebellion, a platform for creative activism by and for women of color. We are setting a table for intergenerational dialogue and collective disruption. Imagine it as a historical digital archive remastered for contemporary use and permanent preservation. These are our stories told by us for us. So get hyped for your co-hosts. Rosa Rebellion co-founders Virginia Cumberbatch, myself, Megan Harding, and the matriarch of Virginia's maternal family and the anchor of this podcast, someone we affectionately call G-Mom, Dr. Sylvia Russo. Gen activist, yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Gen Activist. We are really excited for today's conversation. Um, as y'all know, the vision and mission of Rosa Rebellion is to be a space to amplify and elevate the voices and work of women of color. But we know and we believe that this work of racial justice, this work of equity can't happen um, in a vacuum. That we need the diligence, the contributions, and the seeding of power and privilege of white women in order for us to truly dismantle systems of oppression. And so today we're excited to invite two women who we believe their current life stories are an example of coagitation. And our first guest has been a friend of Rosa Rebellion for the last year, um, Brooklyn Decker. Brooklyn Decker has a layered career. She started out as a model, making a name for herself in publications like Sports Illustrated, Vogue, and Glamour. And then she transitioned into acting over a decade ago and is currently a regular on Netflix's longest running series, Grace and Frankie. Brooklyn co-founded Finery, a tech startup in the fashion space that sold to Stitch Fitch in, in 2019. She's a proud investor and advisor to several companies, mostly founded and run by women. Most importantly, she's a mom to two sometimes hellish children. And Brooklyn was joined by another voice that we believe her life, again, exemplifies what it means to pull up and be a part of this work of racial justice. It's a woman who I affectionately call Aunt Sarah, and I'm gonna let G-Mom introduce her. Yes, I'm happy to introduce Sarah Wood, who's been a friend since my children were young. Our friendship dates back to the 60s and 70s, uh, much of which was at the height of the civil rights movement. And as a woman who is identified uh, as white, uh, although she may have uh, also some heritage uh, from uh, Native Americans. I know her as a friend because of her way of seeing the world and how she sees others uh, and her stands for racial justice, social justice in everything she does, whether it's the way she goes to church and when, when she speaks about um, social justice in relation to the organized religion world. Um, she's a retired social worker. Um, her voice is always present and she doesn't think of herself necessarily as an activist. She is, it's just who she is. Her identity is one in which she sees herself as an advocate for humanity and social justice and racial justice. So we're super excited for y'all to listen in on this conversation and hopefully you glean a little bit of wisdom, encouragement, and challenge yourself to figure out what it looks like to pull up to this work. Today, we are really excited to center a conversation that we think is critical. Um, as many of us have witnessed and experienced 2020 and 2021, um, many have described as a racial reckoning. Um, we have had to really grapple with the painful histories and the continued contemporary conversations of racial injustice in this country. Um, and that has 
forced many of us, particularly those who um, do not identify as people of color, to wrestle with our own humanity, the ways in which we've engaged in these conversations, or perhaps how we've allowed privilege, power, position to shield us from these important conversations. And so while Rose Rebellion is a space centering the voices of women of color. We thought it was important to invite some of our favorite co-agitators to the podcast to talk us a little bit about the ways in which they've navigated this conversation, to share some of their um, tribulations, difficulties, discomfort, as well as some of the ways in which they believe they are truly investing in this important conversation. So we're going to kick things off. I'm going to invite um, first Aunt Sarah, um, Sarah Wood, to just tell us a little bit about yourself. And if you wouldn't mind for listeners, maybe walk us through when you first viscerally remember recognizing race as a concept and sort of your own identity. Okay. I actually must admit, I was really young when I first recognized race as a as something in our society that wasn't quite right. Uh, I grew up, and thanks to my parents, being totally aware of some of the discrimination that was going on. Do I remember all of it when I was that young? Probably not. But my, my father is from Nome, Alaska. He's Native American. And there's always been this racial awareness ever since youth. And then part of growing up, uh, this was in the 40s. Oh my God, that sounds so old. Um, 44, 45, we had my uh, aunt and uncle living with us. And my uncle had been in the Navy military and he had married a lady. Actually, I think she had been in the internment camp uh, Japanese, and then they came to live with us and became acutely aware, even that young, of the discrimination against Japanese American, uh, Asian American today. Um, then it just, you know, that's just been part of my life. I'm, uh, my mother's Irish, um, I've got, have had a lot of white privilege but also being acutely aware of some of the injustices. I, one thing that stands out is when I was in the Navy, I was contacted actually by some people, family members who knew Sylvia and they wanted Edward Waters, which is a historical black college to be integrated. And this was in 66. And I was asked if I would be willing to go enroll in Edward Waters College, um, and I did. And it's probably one of my better experiences um, having gone there because you learn in depth uh, what the discrimination, racism has been. And then I'm where I am today. You know, a lot of stuff happened after I was in the Navy, and now I'm in Indianapolis, and. I'm working at a homeless shelter, actually, which I really like, and I'm ready to retire. And that's thank you so much for sharing. I mean, oh. you know, I think so. What's so clear from your story, right, is the way in which your family played such an integral role in exposing you to these conversations, right? And um, I think maybe rare, particularly in that time frame, was your education being a part of your. Um, exposure, right, to understanding maybe how privilege served you um, in relation to those that you grew up with. Um, Brooklyn, would you mind kind of sharing with us your origin story, um, sort of where you're from, and particularly how you've come in your adulthood from adolescence to kind of experience the ways in which race is a, um, an integral part of our landscape as a culture? Yes. Um, well, I, I grew up in the South and um, race, the conversations around race, exposure to race, I think is something that um, in the South is fraught and uh, charged. And I, 
I was born in Ohio. My family, my parents, my mom is a retired nurse. My dad um, works with pacemakers. And so they're both in healthcare, um, which talk about intersectionality. You, I feel like that's highly, as far as intersectionality goes, it's a, it's a place of high concentration there. Uh, just different races and, and, and religions and walks of life and experiences. Um, and so we moved to Charleston, South Carolina, which is where my younger brother was born. And my mom, as a new nurse, experienced so much racism in healthcare. And so from a very young age, it was a conversation my parents were having with us. I think they, um, I sort of grew up in the we don't see color generation, but my parents were still talking about race all the time. And then we moved to North Carolina when I was four. Um, and my mom's two bosses were two black doctors and my first teacher in school was a black kindergarten teacher. And so in my sort of early childhood experience, I saw in positions of leadership, people of color. Um, that being said, there were still KKK marches down the town main street where I grew up. So it was sort of this strange, in my personal home life, uh, we talked about race. Um, I think my parents, did the best that they could at that time when I was growing up um, to educate us and inform us and to teach us, which now I see, now I know is teach us how to be anti-racist at the time. I don't know that that was a term that they knew or I knew, um, but I was still living in North Carolina in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and then it's funny, Sarah, you talk about integration. Uh, Charlotte, I was a public school kid and Charlotte Mecklenburg schools, they were one of the earliest uh, public school systems to introduce uh, busing in the South. And so until I went to school in the early 2000s, um, I was bused. And so our schools were, in, were very integrated and um, I went to school, I was living in the suburbs of uh, Charlotte and I went to school in Charlotte. Uh, and they actually ended busing my sophomore year. And so I ended up going to a neighborhood school and the integration was sort of lost um, in the kind of the middle of my high school career, which was at the time felt like a huge loss. Um, and then at 18, I moved to New York, which from North Carolina, a girl who had never traveled or been really lived in a big city or had a passport, moving to New York was a huge culture shock. Um, and so yeah, race is something that I think I've always been aware of. It's always been talked about, um, but I don't think that I was aware of sort of the um, the great injustice of it until I saw it playing out outside of my home, if that makes sense. Uh, and then as an adult, I think, again, I would like to say that I was aware growing up, but I think I have until the last maybe three to five years have been totally unaware um, or mostly unaware of how uh, systemic it is and how it affects every facet of our lives and uh, how to this day um, it's something that is still entrenched in everything that we do and, and, and everything that we are. So I think it's a constant learning and unlearning. Um, but as far as my sort of history and growing up in context to race, um, yeah, I feel like that, that was it for me. Yeah, I think, um, Brooklyn, I'm thinking about the fact that you said you were, you were busing in the 2000s. And my dad integrated his high school. So I think it was like seven to 10 of them that started going to the white high school. Um, and that would have been the 60s. <laughs> so thinking about, you know, that connection is, is wow you know, and then they stopped doing it and then kind of understand, you know, redlining, integration stops um, and all of the like consequences of that, right? Um, you know, I think that what is important in what both of you said was to have this connection to history, which is something that we always try to do here at Rosa Rebellion is, is to understand the history of how we got to where we are. Um, and to connect that to our personal stories um, is really, really important. And Aunt Sarah, I want to ask you a question related to that. You know, um, Brooklyn, I think we've talked about this in various forums, but um, when you think about the suffrage movement of the 1920s or the women's movement of the 1970s, you know, and kind of the current narrative that we have right now, we have, you know, equal pay, which people just voted against. I'm gonna put that aside. <laughs> we have Me Too. Um, and we're kind of talking about gender equity 
um, a lot more, but oftentimes when it's talked about, it's talked about um, in a way that centers white women. Um, and even when we talk about diversity and inclusion and equity, those words have kind of lost um, a lot of their meaning because a lot of times um, people will add in white women and say, well, we have women and so now we're diverse and we're equitable. Um, and it kind of ignores the nuanced needs of our cultural expressions, critical contributions of women of color. And so I'd love to kind of get your perspective on what you observed in the context of the civil rights movement and then our contemporary reality today. And in what ways do you think gender equity in particular needs to more explicitly include racial justice? I read that question about the uh, women's movement in the 60s and 70s. And actually, I'm not sure if I'm the best to answer that. I did not get really involved in the women's movement per se. I'm a big believer in it, but at the same time, I could see that it was just letting out all diversity. It was all white women, and I I really wasn't drawn to get real active with with the uh, women's movement. I have been drawn to get real active with the me movement. Um, Black Lives Matter movement. I know this isn't what you're asking, um, but I, I, I guess I was so ingrained, and this is from my parents, that you know it can't be all about white folks, and you have to recognize your white privilege. But at the same time, the women's movement just seemed to be leaving out a whole group of people. Except my mother always said the good thing about it, it was opening up the ballot box. And she said her her grandmother was, it must have been her, her grandmother, yeah, was really active, involved in the suffrage women's movement, which was way before my time. Uh, I'm not that old. Um, <laughs> but um, so that's kind of my involvement with the women's movement. Yeah, no, I think that's so, great, right? The idea that you were not drawn to it because you had this awareness that it did not include people of color and probably before intersectionality was even a term that had definition, you understood that it was lacking um, intersectionality. Right. Um, I, th I think that that's important, right? That's the crux yeah. of, of, of kind of what we're talking about is that you know, even when it opened up the ballot box, it opened up the ballot box for white women. Um, and it wasn't until the 1960s, mid 1960s, that black women would, would get the right to vote. Um, and then today, if we connect that to our contemporary reality today, um, across the country, state legislators are doing everything they can. Um, and, and conservatives at the, at the national level to kind of restrict the ballot box and how important, um, you know, the fight for just the right to vote, the right to show up and participate in a democracy that they told us was a participatory democracy is um, for actually not just the women's movement, but for racial justice, right? The idea that we have to vote in people who understand the need for equity and racial justice. Um, and so they restrict the valid block box so that, you know, hopefully we won't show up, but we know that we will. <laughs> so we will still show up. Um, so I yeah. thought that answer was great. Yeah, I think this conversation, when I'm listening to this conversation, um, there are a couple of things that come to mind, uh, maybe three. But the first one is Frederick Douglass, when uh, when we're talking about generations going back the 40s before then the women's suffrage, um, Frederick Douglass just said something to us that I think we have to be mindful of all the time. Power concedes nothing without a struggle. And so we're looking at the generations um, where it's almost a message that I think we have to give it. And when I listen to Brooklyn and Sarah, it's not you're not neophytes. You're not new to this struggle. And one of the things you can be, people always talk about generational wealth. 
you have some generational wealth from your ancestors that cannot be measured in dollars and cents, but the way you see the world, the way you see yourself in it, and your recognition that you're a part of this ongoing struggle. Uh, it's a legacy that you've received from your parents that you can't give up this struggle. It goes and it manifests itself in so many ways. Um, and we see it uh, in the women's movement, et cetera. But underneath it all, I think what we have to say, and I always think of this pyramid where whites are at the peak and blacks are at the bottom. No matter what those struggles may be, this nation returns to the struggle and racism regarding black people. Uh, and it's a thread that runs throughout. And even when we have women who are standing up for their rights as they should, we know that the women's rights movement in the before leading to 1917 was full of racism itself. It wasn't just the new movement in the 1960s. Uh, so we had some of the key leaders who uh, started the struggle with Frederick Douglass around abolition. They saw themselves as united or allies. But when it got tough and the struggle was on, Stanford and some of those people denied um, uh, affiliation and broke from affiliation and did also some of the most racist things that uh, that we could possibly imagine as women. So I think what we have to be careful, black racism is in the roots of America. And, um, and almost equal is for indigenous people. So other people may rise for a moment and get a level of freedom uh, and we, we rally around it but what's so entrenched and recalcitrant is this uh, anti-Black racism that permeates every other movement. And it separates us because when people are trying to make their move as women, or as we talked to Rita last week as Asian women, uh, somehow this root of Black at the bottom of everything permeates everything. And that when people enter it for their own rights, if it becomes expedient for them, they forget their uh, kinship to the black struggle. And yet the black struggle has been so informative and allowed people to gain their freedom. So I'd, I'd like us to try to think about and one last piece, we talked in our last podcast about education. I think it has been, and Brooklyn, you brought up healthcare. Those are two areas of our lives that are fundamental rights to our humanity. And yet this racism just sits in the middle of it. Uh, and we raise generations of kids who may not have had the experience you and Sarah had of parents, but who have not so that's why I think you inherited wealth because there's so many white people in this country who've had no exposure and their whole humanity has been shaped around an identity that says to them they're superior to black people and anybody else who gets in the way absolutely I mean this is just another instance of uh, G Mom offering us an incredible dissertation TED Talk um, in the middle of a podcast recording. No, it's like right here, and we're like, oh yeah, we're also hosts. We should we should also engage. Um, but I think I, I want to pick back up on this piece that G Mom you just shared around the the critical nature of education. And Brooklyn, I know this is something important to you as a mother, um, as someone who's trying to find um, your role in this work and for it to become pervasive in sort of your family ethos as well. And I think something that comes up as a common theme in our um, throughout Gen Activists is um, sort of this collective amnesia that as a country we seem to have, where we silo stories, we erase certain stories, right? So when we think about the internment camps that Aunt Sarah just mentioned, when we think about the, the segregation of our neighborhoods, not just in the early 20th century, but as early as our own, as late as our own adolescence, 
this is such a critical piece of anchoring the work to be done in present day, right? That we can't start this conversation um, in February of 2020. We need to start it at the founding of this country. As G-Mom just said that in the roots of this country is a, um, an understanding that we have dehumanized certain identities. And so Brooklyn, if you'll just kind of walk us through sort of your experience and understanding that our education system um, was not set up to tell us the truth, was not set, us up, set up to equip us to be able to facilitate these conversations. And I think what we see as the consequence of that is a defensiveness that sets in um, as people who identify as white, because when we think about privilege or we think about access, Sometimes it feels like we're undermining their, their work or undermining their merits, right? But in essence, what we're trying to do is surface this truth that at no point in time has your race kept you from having access to equitable healthcare, right? Or housing. Um, so you can talk, us, talk to us a little bit about how education played a role um, in this and how you have navigated perhaps those moments where defensiveness feels like an easy emotion and in what ways you're trying to instill that in the education of your own children. Yeah, I mean, I think what you um, are talking about so eloquently is sort of the American myth of meritocracy. Um, and for me, I know as a publicly educated child, that is how we were educated and to to me uh that is the american origin story according to my public education when i look back at what we learned and were educated on around race we talked about slavery but again it was dehumanizing it was a group of an, of, of it was a group it was a collective who were nameless and faceless and it was atrocious and that's what we were taught and we were taught about Harriet Tubman, and then we were taught about the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King Jr. And then we are now taught that in the present, racism no longer exists. And then Obama is elected. So look, we're past that. We're past that as a country. We've, we've done it. We're beyond it. We're great. And I think when you have generations of children being taught that and raised on that myth of meritocracy, when all of a sudden you bring up the idea that everything they learned and, and, and the fact that their parents were able to buy a home and the fact that they live in the neighborhood they do and they have access to the schools that they do and the, the doctors that they do, that it's all rooted in racist origins. I think people do get defensive because for many people, it's the first time they're hearing of that later in their development. And if they don't know otherwise and they're not taught otherwise, maybe it's willful, willful, willful ignorance, but at best, it's simply because they weren't educated appropriately. And that's our education system failing, or hopefully not, but as we've seen, sort of more nefariously intentioned, achieving its goal, which is to sustain white supremacy. And so all that to say, I think the idea not to bring in the slogan, but the whole make America great again, the fact that that took off, that that snowballed is no surprise when we're sitting here glorifying the past. It is no surprise to me that we're sitting here saying things should be like they were in the 50s. What, when, when women couldn't get, couldn't open bank accounts without a husband's signature, when there wasn't equal access to anyone of color to, to again, healthcare, education, jobs, housing, etc. I mean, we're, what are we, what are we making great again? And again, not to bring the, that piece into it, but the, the, the fact that we're here is no surprise to me when we've sort of been taught this myth as children. And so my belief as a mom is that we can't undo the things that we have not learned. And so I, for me, like the utopian version of education is teaching our children the origins of this country, which are brutal and ugly and dark and teaching them that, but look how far we've come. Are we there yet? No. Can we rest yet? No. Will we get there in our lifetimes? Unlikely, but hopeful. But let's teach our kids the true origins of this country so that if they know how brutal this country's origins are, maybe they'll want to do better. I think the idea of teaching slavery as this monolith, which is flawed, but I think the idea in doing that is so that kids want to move past that and want to say, oh, we're not that, we're better. So if we really sort of 
distill that down, if we open it up a little bit and we say, let's really get to Thanksgiving is not about pilgrims and natives getting together and holding hands around a table. I mean, I remember being in a school play about that in public schools. I remember I might've played a native American child. I mean, like it's so wrong and flawed and inaccurate. And I, I love that you brought up that image, um, Brooklyn, because I think, again, when we tie, we, there's sometimes such a fraught reaction to like, how are we still grappling with these conversations and these mis, the, the miseducation, right, or the mythology? Um, and we're like, yeah, I don't know why year after year we have people going to sorority parties dressed in some sombreros and like indigenous costumes. It's like, well, we created a dynamic that said, we could appropriate a culture, misinform ourselves about the way we brutalize and erase that culture in some ways. So of course it's ingrained to us that we have the privilege to wear it as a costume and not pay homage to them. And so I, I loved that piece that you shared that we cannot undo the things we have not learned. I mean, that right there, I think, just centers this conversation. What Megan and I often talk about that this work of racial justice isn't about just learning, it's also unlearning. Yeah, I, I'd like, uh, so education, I think we've agreed. That's been one of my favorite themes and, uh, and you two exemplify that so much. I wanna ask Sarah here something uh, because we uh, came into each other's presence in the Christian community and um, and we became co-agitators within the Christian community. And, and Brooklyn, you may not know, my, my husband was a pastor and was actually in seminary uh, in an institution that was about as racist as you can ever get. And I think uh, the initial affinity between Sarah and my husband and me is that she was a warrior um, and so if you can talk a little bit about your struggles to retain your faith, and I truly believe you're one of the most authentic Christian people I know, but what your struggle has been to retain your faith and what your journey has been while you're also resisting the, uh, a Christianity that is uh, just tied up in and promoting racism. My, my experience at the seminary was just an eye-opener as to what Christianity is not. I mean, like, I'm still appalled when I think about, but at the same time, I'm, I'm really blessed because it opened my eyes and it let me get beyond the walls of what they call a Christian uh, college seminary. My problem is I'm not sure how much they have changed, but I have been able, I think, to just go on. Um, I wasn't a good match for that school. <laughs> for a few friends that I've met, Sylvia and Algie actually being the only two that I can really think of. And, and I know that's awful after spending so long. I mean, I, I ended up getting kicked out of the seminary I didn't leave voluntarily, uh, but guessing in a way I did. This is probably getting into more than what you don't want, but we were required to go to chapel, it seems like, every day, and of course, that wasn't a good match for me, and we were told, you know, we had to do these prayers every day, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, and so one day I didn't go to chapel, I heard the Dean of Women coming. I jumped in the closet. She heard me and she opened the door and she said, what are you doing? I said, I think we were supposed to pray in private. And it was decided I wasn't a good match. Um, so I left. I, I am a deep believer in a supreme being. And I believe God is in actually everything. I'm not sure if I'm answering this question, but i went from the seminary and gone to another college called College of the Scriptures, which was supposed to be a black seminary for black students. Um, and, and, you know, after I had been to Edward Waters College, I got there and I wasn't successful. I 
I believe, I believe in God, you know, and I believe God is in every creature. So one of my experiences, um, I'm also a pastor's kid and, you know, kind of grew up in, in all black churches. And then when I got to college, I was in a multicultural church and it was a very different experience for me. And so a lot of my work around racial justice has been in a space um, that is multicultural and trying to get white people, particularly evangelicals and Christians, to deconstruct the national, the white supremacy and nationalism that they were taught in the pews. Let's be clear. They were not taught this outside of church. Um, they were taught it there too, but in a lot of ways, what they were taught in church reaffirmed their belief that they were the chosen ones or that white people were somehow supreme beings to everyone else. And so when you, when you take that kind of theology that is deep rooted and intertwined um, with someone's faith, which we know to be personal and um, extremely embedded, it is really hard to root it up. It's really, really hard to get them to focus on the justice parts and the ways in which Jesus was an, one, not white, but two, an example of, you know, um, accepting everyone and not just accepting them, but actually co-agitating, um, actually shaking up cultural norms. And so I believe that a lot of your work has focused on that as well. And so if you could talk to us specifically about how you have dealt with the intersection of race and faith with the knowledge that in a lot of ways, um, Western Christianity has reinforced white supremacy. You know, I, I'm not sure if I know how to identify that, actually. Um, I have been involved with trying to make the congregations where I attend being aware of what is going on in, in the religion. Um, within the Episcopal Church is something that I have dealt with a little bit, but not a lot, nearly as much as I should be, actually. Uh, but we had a convention last year, two years ago, and we were talking about racism in, in our churches. I'm talking about the Episcopal churches particularly. And I happened to bring up, you know, Episcopal Church needs to be looking at some of these private schools uh, that they send their white kids to, basically. And the cost is so prohibitive. How do they, how can they talk about diversity and wanting to educate more kids when they have a system set up that prohibits minorities, blacks, or other people from going to school there? I mean, there's just a whole just of things that's going on, not with a, just Episcopal Church, but all the other churches where it seems to think they, they're, they're missing the point. And in regards to the Episcopal Church, I must say, I think we've got many great, they're changing, they're progressing, and they're replacing some of the black, white uh, leaders with more black leaders and our bishop is in Indianapolis actually is our first female black bishop that we've ever had. On, on the national level, we have Bishop Curry, uh, who is the first black bishop uh, for the whole Episcopal church that we've ever had. Um, so my, that's kind of what I'm doing, you know, I'm trying to also teach my grandkids different things and religious wise. Mm -hmm. that's the that's the point right like it's so embedded and integrated into who you are that even when asking to recount it it doesn't naturally come up because for you um co-agitating or bringing up race or being sure that people who aren't in the room are being thought about is just how you live and that's really what we hope um happens with a lot of people who right now are calling themselves allies <laughs> um that they move from allyship and being passive to being active coagitators and it just becomes embedded in who they are and they see the world through a different lens just just share one more experience about a person you disinvited from thanksgiving dinner oh god <laughs> yeah we always have we try to host a 
decent size uh, Thanksgiving dinner, we invite guests. And I had invited this one family to come for dinner. Actually, I felt like no one's going to invite them, so I might as well invite them. And so I did. But during one of our conversations, she was going on how much she couldn't have been Trump. It, it was some other Obama I person. Think. Was it Obama? How much she did not like him, that she was hoping he uh, wouldn't get elected. How she liked Romney. Uh, and that um, I, I sat there and listened to her talk. And the next day, I called her and said, you know what? I don't think you're going to feel comfortable in my house at Thanksgiving. So you're, you're not invited. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> That's a polite so, way so, to, to to stake your claim and put your flag in the ground and say you are not going to be. <laughs> I love that rephrasing, right? Now I'm disinviting to my house. I I'm worried about you as a host. <laughs> I love Aunt Sarah for kind of again, as Megan said, articulating what we believe coagitation to be. Right, that it's not this performative thing that happens when we talk a lot about how oftentimes the, the call to participate in the work of dismantling oppression happens during these infliction points, right? And when we hear something that happened in the news or it's in a, you know, it's pervasive throughout our Twitter timeline or Instagram timeline, and then we act. And then we go back to our normal posture. We go back to our normal routines. And so I think, Aunt Sarah, what you um, so beautifully um, articulate just through your life story, you know, just even hearing Gene Mom prompt you, tell them about this story, tell them about that story, right? Is that, and it's that sometimes it's hard for you to capture what the work of racial justice has looked like in your life because it's so inundated in who you are. Um, and so Brooklyn, I, I would love to hear, you know, I, I was imagining this image when you were talking about sort of your life story and coming from Ohio to this small town, North Carolina, and then as a young woman kind of plucked from the South, going to New York for the first time. And I'm imagining what that felt like, what that looked like for you. Um, but also recognizing that you, your career, right, has been a navigation of one of the most highly impactful, visible industries, in, particularly in the North American context, right? Working in the modeling industry, working in the entertainment media space, where what we talked about um, taking place in our education system is oftentimes formalized, right? And um, we kind of center certain voices, right? We understand whose stories get to be told, whose faces get to be um, equated with beauty standards. And so if you talk us a little bit about your first recognition or observation of the power of the space you were in um, and story maybe that you have about the ways in which you wish diversity and inclusion um, was more easily accessible and what you might think is the potential of the entertainment space to be um, a tool of disruption. I mean, the power of the industry is immeasurable when you think about it from a monetary standpoint. I mean, it's, it's, it's an industry that is propping up huge Fortune 500 companies. It's propping up an entire state. It's propping up um, industry all over this country. And so the power of the industry, uh, I think, is immeasurable and at uh, as a result, those who are chosen to models, actors, et cetera, who are chosen to represent these brands are key in their power. Um, yeah, so when I started in the industry, it was 2005, and uh, I was naive on so many levels. Um, but when I look back, your nationality was so important at that time. And uh, being American was not both figuratively and literally in vogue, it was very sort of Eastern European and Brazilian. Those were the two nationalities sort of reigning supreme. And I know that sounds wild, but that is how the industry worked for a very long time. It's like, we have the American girls and then we have the Brazilian girls, then we have the Eastern European girls. And I think because when I started, my brand of self was so not 
the thing that was of the moment, I was too unaware to even recognize uh, lack of representation in uh, with with as it pertains to race, um, as it pertains to age, and then I as it pertains to body size because my size wasn't spot according to the industry right at the time, um, and and I think I was so in my head about all these ridiculous standards, and uh, and how I had very little control over success or or what was put out there that the way that I. I think sort of broke that or resisted it or fought that was I said, I want to be able to be in charge and make my own decisions at some point. And so I got out as quickly as I could and I turned to film and television, which is not much better. Um, and recently I started writing. And I think when you see the success of these particularly black women who Ava DuVernay and Shonda Rhimes and all these incredible minds who are not only making really great content, but are actually bringing in more revenue than any other film and television makers. You're seeing the, the power in the capital that uh, specifically women of color can generate. And I think what we've seen in the industry is that uh, we as white people can no longer uh, rob people of color of their stories and make them our own. We need to start amplifying uh, black voices and brown voices and indigenous voices. And I think um, I started writing for the first time and, and, and my co-writer is a uh, biracial woman and we are writing stories that take place in the South. Um, and unfortunately, I think when you are a model or actor for hire, you're such a literal prop that you're, you feel powerless in a world that is using you most of the time nameless to drive all this revenue. I mean, it's a horribly broken, broken, broken industry. That being said, I am so hopeful now when you look at who's actually creating the most revenue, who is, is, is uh, creating the most interesting content. When you look at um, who's actually in charge now, I am, I am so hopeful about uh, the diversity in, in gender identity, the diversity in skin color, the diversity in size, the diversity in age as it pertains to the fashion industry. I am hopeful that we are having conversations around hair and makeup equity in the film industry. Um, it's terrible it's taken this long, uh, but I do, I think for the first time in my, again, I, I've been in this industry now for 60 yeah, longer almost 20 years and i for the first time feel as though what i'm seeing on my screen is starting to represent what this country actually looks like but we have a lot more work to do yeah i tell you as a little girl from tyler texas um in in the country who wanted to be the female spike lee um somehow i got to law school but that's a long story but i want to be the female spike lee but the reason was because he told st st our stories you know he told stories that mattered and ava duvernay and shonda rhimes you know didn't exist at the time and so it's been so meaningful to me um personally to have like them them as examples and have them tell our stories well um have them have them represent us well has been amazing and i love ava in particular because she didn't start until later in life so it gives me hope that i can that i can still do it right and i'm like i'm like uh, ava didn't start until she was like 40 so it's great um you know i want i want to dig a little bit deeper on what you said though brooklyn right like i think you've recognized all the ways that the industry is messed up and and driven you know obviously by economics and money um, but like you use your platform in a way um, that a lot of people I think are scared to do. Um, you know, they, they won't speak out on certain issues. They won't use at least the access and the privilege that they have to bring up issues of inequity or racial justice or even um, how you use your platform for, for um, electoral politics, you know. So can you talk to me about that personal journey of getting there, getting the courage to do it that way, and then why it's important for you to use your platform in that way? Yeah, you know, I, I think for me, my origin story with so social media in particular um, is unique in that it wasn't a promotional tool. It was my opportunity to actually have a voice. 
because at the time, it was before I started acting, I literally did not have a voice. And I would shoot for a magazine or do a campaign for a company and my name wasn't even on a picture and subtext, nothing. So I, as I said earlier, was a prop. And the version of myself that I saw on screen or on a page was so not who I felt as a person. And so for me, social media was like this opportunity to just be a human being, be a human being who had things to say. And so because I started it, wanting it to be a tool for candor and conversation and authenticity, and I know that's a word that's overused nowadays, but that when I started it, that's, that's why I wanted to engage and how I engaged. It was never an option for me to not use my platform for that reason. And I think when it comes to politics, I think that I do have certainly not a unique point of view, but my perspective, my family, um, my parents did not vote for Donald Trump and I'm so proud, so proud of them, but my family is politically conservative. And uh, I think before Trump, they had voted Republican my entire life. And that was the, I, despite their teachings around race politically, uh, they were, they were very conservative. And so I grew up in North Carolina and then moved to New York and then to Texas. And I know who these voters are. And I have in my last, you know, 15 years of life have chosen, uh, a, a liberal progressive way of life and, and political identity. And so when it comes to politics, I feel that I can really speak to people who maybe were on the fence and were like, whoa, this isn't the party of my parents and I don't agree with this. And there's a total lack of humanity on the right. Sorry to call it out, but there's a total lack of humanity there. And to, I think what Virginia, you and Megan do both so well is you always talk about calling in and not calling out. And so I saw it as an opportunity. I saw my social media platform as an opportunity to really engage in those really difficult conversations with people who were on the fence or who grew up conservative but had never voted liberal in their lives and thought maybe this election, I'll do it. I don't like what my country's turning into. I don't agree with this. And, uh, and so for me, it, was, it wasn't a choice. It was, I had to do it. I felt compelled to do it. And I felt like I was, again, not uniquely qualified but had a life experience that informed those conversations. I, I, I think that's very helpful um, in terms of the stand that you have taken, even with family. Sometimes those are the hardest conversations to have and the hardest um, because it's this mixture of love and respect for one another. And yet you differ so much on things that you value in your humanity. And it's a very hard conversation. It leads me to ask this question as, as we're moving along and toward this conversation. So people like you have made a difference, let's say. Sarah, you, I can say you've made a difference in the, uh, in the religious world. And I, I know that there are people that you have defriended on Facebook in a second uh, when it emerges that they, that's who they truly are. But, um, and, and Brooklyn, you in an industry that's high profile, and that you dare to step into it in that way. And, and I don't think for you, you think it's being bold, but it is being bold. And it's, uh, it, that's when we know these sense of humanity runs so deep that you will um, engage in something without thinking about whether you're risking something or you'll lose something, but that it's necessary as part of your humanity. And, and so it raises for me this question of backlash. So we're seeing the Avas move forward. We're seeing these people uh, move forward and the images abound. You know, every now and then America goes through a period, oh, you want us to like black people now? Okay, we're gonna give you all kinds of images. It's everywhere. See, we're doing our job. Uh, and so, uh, and what a good people we are that we're doing our job, we're letting it. But I think uh, one of, it's not a fear, but it's something to deal with that uh, America, white America is so unaccustomed to this prominence among black people. They're so unaccustomed to seeing images in the way they've seen them. Uh, they're so unaccustomed to seeing uh, people on television who are so what they call articulate, but 
run contrary to the images and views that their their own identities are built on maintaining this false image of black people. So there's a sense of loss for them. Uh, who am I now? I always thought I was somebody, you know, I, I'm, no matter what, I knew I was white and that was my currency in this world. And so I think that the resistance has become more vehement in response to that. And so I'd like for us all to kind of weigh in on that. We certainly can't stop, but what are the cautions or what are our responses and what do we do now? We have a lot of attention, but it's not always positive attention now. And the old stories, how do we think we'd ever return to reconstruction? So if there is a backlash. So I'd just like anybody to weigh in on what does that, what implications that has for us now. I, I, think, uh, I think actually that the people, the white people who, and we've had uh, white privilege all along, is fearing a lot more than there is to be feared. I think they are thinking maybe the, the black people, uh, Asian Americans, are all have the soul of the white people. I just don't see it's happening. I don't see where there's anything to be fearful about, actually. You know, if you've created your environment where you have been in superior all the time, of course you're going to be fearful of giving that up. But that's a false kind of fear that's not legitimate. So do I have a right to say what's legitimate yeah. what they're feeling? Yeah, yeah I think I do. Um, so, yeah, I think the backlash is made from their own fears and how they've created a system that's unfair to other people. And yet they oh, are. That's my comments. And yet they're in positions of power, <laughs> and we see our democracy uh, just returning to the pit. Uh, and so, uh, so I, it's not fear. It's not fear at all. It is what do we do now? Because there's such a prominence among them in positions of power and they are controlling the narrative and so that's that's what i'm raising at this point i think any thoughts brooklyn yeah i mean i think it's a i think it's a, a really excellent observation and question and i think we live for better for worse and as flawed as it is and until things get better we live in a capitalist society and 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 a good thing about that is that money and revenue are drivers for who has power and when we look at boards for example in in, in publicly traded companies who have people of color and specifically women of color on their board or are are uh, not just not just one token person of color on their board but have genuinely diverse boards they perform economically far better than their all white run counterparts. When we look at media and, uh, and, and to your point, yes, I think white people have put, put people of color in a box of who they can be successful and how they can be successful and how they're allowed to speak. And then there's a, a public outcry. But if you look at who's in power now, it's starting to look to me more diverse as far as um, uh, the, the people who are, who are creating the content we're consuming, the people who are writing the articles that we're reading, the people who are on our television screens. And in, in that content that's being put out there is driving more eyeballs, more revenue, and is more successful than sort of previously uh, all white run shows, for example. And so I think when you look at markers of success in a capitalist society, it's revenue and i think what we're seeing is diversity has proven to be a financially successful model and therefore in our very flawed system in this country i actually think what we're seeing is that people are are now fearing or not now fearing but are now trying to get away from stru business structures and content structures of the past and are moving to word a more holistically representative business model 
and content model. And so I'm hopeful that simply because of, if we only talk about the metric of money, which is gross, and, but it's the country we live in. If we look at the metric of money, these companies are performing significantly better. Shows are performing significantly better. So it's, I hope that that upward trend continues and then it become, becomes the rule and not the exception. I look, Fox News is the number one uh, ne uh, network and, that, and it caters to people who would rather give up, uh, rather give up a better place in life, would better, they will give up economics. They are sometimes the poorest white people. They would sacrifice that to, rain, to maintain this myth of white superiority. And that they, um, so that, that I, I'm not fearing at all but I think it speaks to what strategies and how we respond. Yeah, G-Mom, I think that, um, I don't know that those people who are watching Fox News understand the indoctrination that they have been given. And so right. I don't think that they know that they are giving up um, so much. Um, you know, Brooklyn, I, I wanna have your optimism about the effect of capitalism. Um, I, I fear though that these companies, um, you know, even the ones that did all this stuff over the last summer, right, are going to fatigue as many white people do in the fight for racial justice. And, it's, and if it's not really rooted in equity, um, you know, if the tables turn on the economics, then obviously we go back. So I worry about that some. Um, I think that uh, I have grave concerns about white people's stamina <laughs> to, to continue this fight and what it will cost them. I always tell people, you know, this unity, this reconciliation, even though we've never really been concealed, uh, you, you can't reconcile something that's never had conciliation. But this reconciliation that you so want, this peace that you so want will cost you something. And for white people, that is power. They must cede yes. yes. power. And yes. I am concerned about their ability to do that for the long haul. You know, we do it in spurts, right? Uh, share the mic, right? Okay, well, I'm gonna use my platform, right? But then it's, it, 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 it's fleeting. And so I hope that white people, enough white people, um, especially those in power, are willing to pay the cost for the unity that they say they want um, and for justice, and they're willing to seek power. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. Sorry, Virginia, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think, you know, Megan shared about the seating of power, which sometimes comes in the form of seating position. You know, you talked about board placements, right? Sometimes that comes in the seating of privilege, right? We oftentimes are really comfortable with this, um, this mentality or this infrastructure of, well, we've already built the table and the agenda, but we're going to make sure you get a seat at it rather than the recalibration of what does it look like to actually co-create a table, right? That mandates that you cede your position, you cede your, your, your privilege. And I think for too long, even as we enter this conversation of diversity and equity, right, that has become in some ways performative, that has in some ways come without the cost that Megan calls us to, is we've been comfortable with setting agendas, setting tables, and then just leaving a few seats open. And that's how we get to tokenism. And so as we close, you know, speaking of the hopes that you have, Brooklyn, um, I would love for you and Aunt Sarah to kind of close us out with talking about what is your seed of encouragement to white women who might be listening to this? What is your seed of challenging them to maintain a posture of coagitation? to not um, get exhausted by this work, but instead to um, make it pervasive as a part of who they are and what the spaces they're called to. So when we think of this word coagitation, what does it mean to you? And what would be your encouragement to other women listening? And we'll start with you, Brooklyn, and end with Aunt Sarah. First of all, let me just say, Megan, I totally agree with you on the capitalism. I, I, I do feel like the need to clarify that because I am not pro pro capitalism, but if we're talking about the benefits, right. And like, let's talk about the things that are going to fuel us and propel us forward. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm with you. I think it's broken and continues to be uh, part of the 
greater oppressor in our country. Um, I really feel the need to clarify that. Um, as far as the general fatigue and, and what I would say to white women, it's a fear of mine as well. I see it happening with women in the community here, uh, the general fatigue of these conversations. And that's terrifying to me. Um, I think what I love about what the two of you do is you always talk about calling in, as I said earlier. And I think when we talk about coagitation, I don't want to undermine the work that goes into activism and coagitation. But what I will say is it's not hard if it's sustained and constant, meaning we have a dollar, we vote with our dollar. What businesses are we supporting? What restaurants are we frequenting? What conversations are we having? Who are the leaders at our children's school? What are their teachers teaching our children? Those are all conversations that we are all having every day. These are decisions that as mothers, we make every single day. Now we can make them with a weight in racial justice. And so if I were talking to my fellow white women, I would say that don't be weary. It's a privilege to be able to say you're exhausted by this conversation. Do not check out. All parents want is a better society and a better world for their, their children. And if our efforts are sustained and they multiply, even the smallest efforts can make a difference over time. And I think uh, the performative nature of this moment and of social media can be a trap. And I would say, do the work at home. And it's with, again, there's, there are decisions that as women, we, we make 80% of the decisions in our household. We make decisions every single day. And every single one of those decisions gets our mind share and has power. Let's use it and weight it towards racial justice. Uh, I love that, Brooklyn. That's so good. Well, thank you so much, um, Aunt Sarah and, and Brooklyn for those pieces. Um, of wisdom and um, encouragement because you know when we think about this work in Brooklyn it's such um, a, a lovely um, encouragement um, and affirmation for you to recognize and feel that the work that we do is the work of calling people in and not calling folks out um, that we believe there is space for challenging and critique you know James Baldwin always says like I critique the things that I love and I love America and therefore that's why I critique it the most um, which we think is different from condemning right um, and what greater work can come in when we can co-labor with one another we can truly co-create a more just world but we recognize that there is a power that comes when you speak to those who have similar lived experiences right that um, has a more visceral impact than can come from um, from myself or Megan or G mom and so uh, we thank you all for the ways in which you show up in this world for the ways in which you have um, leveraged your spaces of influence um, to bring about change. And I think Brooklyn, one of the most beautiful parts of what you shared today is the encouragement to do the work right where you are, right? That this work happens in your home, this work happens in your neighborhood, this work happens in your family. And that has ripple effects that will come for generations. Right, and to not be overwhelmed with the idea that we're asking you to tear down the education system, change the criminal justice system, change the way in which our democracy works. But we are asking you to take responsibility and accountability for the spaces you've been called to. Um, and so we hope that our conversation today lives beyond this podcast. Um, and again, we thank you for the ways in which you have done the work to see power, privilege, and position in order to create a more just community. 